and welcome to episode 26 of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Gosselin, editor of the Society's members magazine, Unfiltered. Well, we might not be able to travel very far at the moment, and it's hard to believe that it's been a year since I had the pleasure of visiting Rassi Distillery off the coast of Skye. That was our last real trip for Unfiltered magazine. But we can still make virtual journeys, and that's exactly what I did recently to explore the ins and outs of Ardnamurchan Distillery. I caught up with Alex Bruce, he's the Managing Director of Distillery Owners Adelphi, to find out all about this recent addition to the Scottish distilling landscape. I began by asking Alex why his company took the decision to locate their distillery at the far end of one of Scotland's remotest peninsulas. The distillery was born out of our independent bottling company Adelphi, um, which has been going uh, 28 years. And um, we, like many others in the mid 2000s, realized that the long term um, independent bottling scene was changing quite rapidly. Uh, demand was really growing for single malt and, and in particular the, the single casks of single malt. And um, as a result, supply was beginning to flatline. So we had a few discussions around, you know, how do we guarantee quantity and quality going forward? Um, and the most interesting to us um, was to build our own distillery, which would not only secure that, but also, um, I suppose, looking back to the past, it would give Adelphi um, a distillery again, you know, having had one in, in Glasgow back in the um, 1800s. So that was the, the sort of main overarching reason for it. Uh, in terms of why Ardnamurchan, um, two reasons. Uh, the first primary, the primary reason was that the ownership of Adelphi uh, is uh, the two gentlemen who have land, who, who live on and, and around Ardnamurchan, uh, one of whom has the estate there, which has a number of different businesses on it, including farming, forestry, um, those kind of things. So uh, it made sense to look on their land um, and to find uh, a spot that had sufficient water um, and enough room to build distillery and warehousing. Uh, so we had about eight different sites. Uh, we went for the one at Glenbeg um, because of the, the room and the quantity of water, both from the river, the Glenmore River, and also from the springs coming out of the peat bogs on the hill. Um, then we looked at how we could potentially design a distillery to fit in with that remote area. And really, this was one of the most exciting parts of the whole project, was looking at this kind of symbiotic approach to the land around us, to, the, to our neighbours, to our environment and all the rest of it. So on the one side, we had the potential to be supplied by locally harvested wood chip so that we could go down this um, green energy uh, um, method, if you like. And on the other side, we had a farmer with enough cows and land to take our pot ale and draft. Um, so if you like, the whole thing could be contained within that uh, remote location. Now, of course, you've still got to bring bring in casks and malted barley and things like that, but it, it's a minimum amount compared to, um, you know, taking away byproducts and all the rest of it. And of course, heavy fuel requirements. So that, that was the, the concept. Um, and then the bonuses have been the quality of the water which is fantastic, really lovely, soft, peaty water. 
and this amazing maritime, forced maritime coastal uh, maturation climate, um, which has been superb for our Dunwich warehousing. Had there been any tradition of whiskey making in that area, Alex? I'm not aware of it. Uh, legally not, but it was it was a massive illicit um, uh, distilling area, and there are great uh, tales of of smugglers dropping off um, probably some kind of aquavita in Tobamori, which is uh, what is it five six seven miles something like that by boat, and being um, chased out by uh, customs officers. Uh, and then entering sort of, you know, um, uh, battles literally at sea in these little boats. And at one point, I think they actually sank the customs boat and made it back to Ardemarkin and, and had disappeared into the hills before they managed to catch catch up with them. Well, I mean, I suppose um, it's like, you know, Isla obviously owes something of its whiskey heritage to the fact it was isolated and they could see the excise men coming. And I guess in Ardemarkin it would have been the same. It's, it, 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 as I said, it's, it is part of the mainland, but it's so remote. It's almost an island. No, absolutely. The only other one that we're aware of, um, and it was actually uh, Colin Ross, um, you know, uh, who used to be at Ben Nevis for so many years. He sent me an article from a newspaper from way back, I mean, centuries ago, um, of a court case in Fort William, where um, I think it was a, a farmer was taking the distiller to court uh, from Strintian, which isn't that far away. It's just the, the sort of beginning of the peninsula, um, for basically poisoning his uh, chickens. Um, so I don't know quite what had happened, but there'd obviously been some um, alcohol got into the draft or something. I'm not quite sure what. <laughs> Drunken Scottish chickens, uh, and 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 obviously that climate you're talking about with uh, you, you know you're right on the coast and and one of the wildest parts of, of the Scottish coast I suppose. And you, are you seeing that influence coming through? Yeah, I mean we we all know it's a bit of a black art when you get to maturation and climate. Um, but I am a strong believer that it. I mean, if you walk into a Dunwich warehouse where it's really working, and you are hit by that wall of you know, sort of rancio and alcohol, um, and you see the mold on the, the inside of the building, you know it's working. You know that this this um, angel share is circulating and it's not coming out just as, well, it's not just coming out, it's going back in as well. And if you mix into that, what's coming out of the sky and, you know, the winds pick up the sea um, all around us and we're only half a mile from, from the coast uh, at the shortest point. So, yeah, I mean, we, we definitely have a strong salty element uh, to us, to our whiskey, um, and you know, where else is that coming from? Yeah, amazing. And and is all your maturation then done on site? We had a temporary blip when, um, as with all things, um, planning permission took longer than expected. And after we were, uh, after we'd filled the first warehouse, which is a two-level Dunwich built into the kind of hillside, um, we were looking to build three more up the hill. And there was about six months when um, they were waiting for planning permission. So we took out stock that we were making at the time uh, into temporary warehousing elsewhere. But that's all back now. And we're just about to complete with a further two warehouses um, next to the, the, the three we built. Okay. So the, the, the long-term plan is to have everything on site? Yeah. I mean, where, where I'm speaking from today, which is where we do our bottling for Adelphi and Ardemarkin down in Fife, um, we have uh, short-term storage here as well, 
So if you like, we have a rolling stock of 200 casts or so um, that we can uh, vat from for the next uh, single malt each time. And what other challenges have you faced in terms of working in that location, Alex? Uh, has, it, has, it, has it been straightforward or uh, <laughs> how has that worked out? I think, well, the first major challenge, and it's never really gone away, it's just got it's got slightly easier to control um, with better understanding and maintenance, um, has been the 100% reliance on biomass uh, wood chip as our fuel source. And there are so many different elements to running a biomass boiler um, compared to gas or, or you know, the, the normal. Um, so, for example, you've got the, uh, the filling store, which is... It's about the same size as a half an Olympic swimming pool um, underground, and it's got two moving floors. So the wood chip is delivered by tractor and trailer. Um, it's tipped into this, and then it just moves to the boiler, to the auger, um, as, as time goes on. We burn about a tonne every two hours, so it's a fair old um, um, amount. And you have hydraulic issues in there. The moving floors stop. Um, if you decide to go away for Christmas and not have the boiler running, the wood chip gets damp and clogs up. So there are lots of physical things which you wouldn't normally have um, uh, if you're not using biomass. The boiler itself needs a lot more maintenance. So we have twice as much uh, shutdown time in a, in a given year to look after it. And the ancillaries, you have a lot more of those. So you've got a huge, great um, tank in the roof space, 30,000 litre tank. So the, the, the boiler is heating that tank rather than direct uh, into the stills or whatever. And that way it's a much more um, uh, regular source of steam. So all these different aspects to it, as, as well as the capital to, to build it in the first place. But it's been a great asset to us to be, to be able to have that. Um, so that was one of the first things. Um, building, as in training and retaining a team in a remote location is always going to be difficult especially when you don't have distilling neighbours. Um, so unlike Isla, for example, we don't share. Um, it's too far away to share with anyone. And uh, we were very lucky to have experience come in at the beginning. But of course, that experience, uh, those people weren't really suited to the area in terms of you know, living through the winters in the remote. Um, you know, Three hours to, to do a return journey to the supermarket, for example. Um, but they built the local team and that was fantastic. And we now have a hundred percent local team who have, who have all been there now for, for several years. So that was the second hurdle. And then on a day to day basis, we just have to keep our heads around, you know, um, access. So little things like the ferry that brings you onto the peninsula that goes off to be maintained, uh, in November every year. So you can't get casks in, you can't get barley in. So you've got to stock up. Um, uh, and just, yeah, just little things like that. There was a tree came down on the road and closed it for three weeks at the back end of last year. Um, but it's exciting and it's great to see it working. Um, and, and, you know, when we are open, when COVID isn't around, um, to see all these international visitors coming to, to Arden American for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I guess you've got it to yourself, at least. You're not, you're not sharing it with any other whiskey producers or distilleries. Uh, no, we're not, but we don't... We, <laughs> It's one of those things, it's a balance of how many cars can fit up a single track road um, without clogging it up. And also, you know, we, we're also trying to generate um, with our more distant neighbours. So we've got Sky to the north now with Talisker, Rassi, 
uh, Torrevig. We've got obviously Tobermory and McNean to the south. There's a nice little um, uh, tour to be done there over a couple of days. Yeah. Um, probably West Highlands. Yeah. Uh, and obviously you, you've mentioned the biomass boiler and this uh, drive to make the distillery sustainable, focus on renewable energy. What, what was the kind of motivating factor in that? It's obviously added to the challenges that you, you've mentioned, but what was the motivation to say, right, this is the way we're going to do it and uh, we're, we're, going to, we're going to work with these challenges and we're going to do what we can to overcome these challenges? I think it was really just, um, it was just really common sense. I mean, you, on the one side, you've got this, this, this location, this place where you need to think outside the box. Um, you need to look at local resources. Now, Woodchip, in, in the best possible world, Woodchip is probably not the most green uh, source of fuel because it involves burning something um, and you're going to get, you know, gases released from that. But it is local forestry that would have normally had to have been carted off to Fort William in heavy haulage um, and is now used locally, which is great, and you can replant it. So all that forestry regeneration is also helping um, the area. Um, so yeah, common sense around what was available, what made sense to that, that place, but also very much with a view to the future and how things were changing uh, in industry globally. And it's not just about how we make the stuff. We're now into obviously with our, um, so the first 100% recycled box, uh, I think used for whiskey, and it does have a good whiff of recycled material to it. Um, uh, so all these kind of little things that really build a, a or, or retain a, a low carbon footprint, that, that's so important for any industry nowadays. Yeah, uh, and give, give me an overview of the distillery's, you know, setup. Uh, just uh, tell me about your, you know, your still sizes and your your production volumes, and uh, give me an overview as if I was there. Unfortunately, I can't be there. So yeah, a virtual tour. Um, well, basically, the front of the the um, the site, you have our visitor centre, which is a standalone building but connected, obviously, to the production part. Um, that's on two floors. Uh, it's a little shop below and a bar and, and nice view from the upper level with our offices. And then walking through from there, uh, you come to the still room. So you're at the end of the production line. Um, the stills, we have a 10,000 litre wash and a 6,000 litre spirit, um, uh, both made by Forsyth, who who managed who, who manufactured most of our equipment. Um, we do, because we run peated and unpeated 50-50 uh, you know, uh, every year, we do have split tanks. So our receiving tanks um, don't get contaminated, if you like, peated into unpeated. Um, and the, the, the filling lines from the tanks up to the warehouse are also split. So there are two pipes, one to take peated and one to, to take unpeated. Um, Walking into the tun room from there, so going backwards if you like, we have four wooden washbacks and three stainless steel. Um, uh, I will give you the real reason for this rather than the marketing reason. <laughs> uh, so the, the wooden washbacks, the original ones were designed. Um, so yeah, we backtrack back, right back to when we were designing the whole project. Uh, Dr. Jim Swan, the lovely late uh, Jim Swan, 
was helping me with everything. And um, he suggested that we go to a, a Cooper in Portugal where he knew there were four vats ex cognac. So oak vats uh, being recoupered. And if I was quick, I could get them recoupered to the size we wanted for our washbacks. Um, so we did that. And I think at the time we were the only distillery in Scotland to have oak uh, uh, as a material for our washbacks. Now, unfortunately, um, and this wasn't Jim's fault, it wasn't anyone's fault, it was just a, a question of environment uh, in Scotland. Uh, a hardwood washback um, to the, you know, that, that to made in oak does not survive. Um, it, the, the wood will warp more than softwood and it then doesn't come back into shape. So one by one, sadly, we've had to replace those washbacks. We still have two of the originals, um, but it looks like this year we may have to revert to Oregon pine for those as well. Anyway, um, that was the idea to have something special. So we put these four in, um, the Portuguese coopers made them in Portugal. They then disassembled them, numbering each stave, sent them over a container and followed them in their van and then rebuilt them before the roof went on uh, in the production area. We very quickly realized that we would have room for three more, um, but we didn't have the, uh, the time to have three more wooden ones made. We only had, you know, like a three month window before the roof went on. So we had six, uh, three additional stainless steel ones made. So that's why we have both wood and stainless steel. And to be honest, um, we never run an individual cycle. So we'll never know at the moment anyway, if they're flavoring, you know, the style is different. But what we have noticed is that in uh, extremes of temperature, so heat or cold, the wooden ones are better at natural insulation. Um, that's the only real difference. Um, so yeah, uh, they, they uh, basically take 10,000 liters of wash. Uh, the wooden ones are oversized, so we don't need to have switches. Um, they can foam up naturally and they don't come over the top. The stainless steel have switches on them. Um, for unpeated, we pitch two yeasts and for peated, we just pitch the one yeast. And fermentation times average around 72 hours, um, depending on how many mashes we're doing. But at the moment, we are at full production, uh, well, full economic production, which is 12 mashes a week. So six days, two mashes per day. Um, and then back to the mash tun, it's a two and a half ton mash, semi-louder. Uh, we, we try not to use the rakes very much. Uh, we use, use them a little bit for peated to give it a bit more oils, you know, oily character. But we try and have as clean as water as possible for unpeated to maximize the fruit um, in the spirit. Um, so that's basically the, the main process. Um, we have a... Uh, obviously a mill behind that, um, an Alan Ruddock mill, and then we have four 15,000, um, or oh, sorry, 15 ton uh, malt bins uh, connected to that, that end of the building. Um, and the barley, the malted barley is mainly coming from fields where I'm sitting now. So my, my own family's farm here in Fife, which has been growing barley for the distilling industry for centuries. Uh, we try and get at least 50% crop from this every year. Um, and then it gets malted, uh, what we call toll malted for us by uh, crisps and um, beds. 
Um, and then walking back up the hill, so the back of the site, you have the original Dunwich warehouse. So as I say, split level, the lower level is very damp, beautifully humid and constant temperature, about 12 degrees year round. Um, the water pours off the hill around that building. So really massive humidity. And uh, uh, it's the perfect, you know, natural floor, long-term maturation warehouse. Upstairs, however, it's completely the opposite. It's um, concrete floor, it's much closer to the roof space. So you're getting huge fluctuation in heat from around two to 30 degrees in any given year. Uh, so you walk into that on a summer's day and you're just about knocked out by the alcohol. Um, so that's accelerated maturation, um, uh, but it's been re really exciting seeing the difference and, it, and there is a huge difference between the two. Um, and then further up the hill, as I said earlier, three more Dunwich warehouses, single level um, with another two to go in. Um, yeah, that, that's basically the site. <laughs> a great picture for me, have we? <laughs> Which gets for myself. It, it sounds like you've been quite experimental, though, with your with your washbacks, uh, you know, with your renewable energy, focus on renewable energy. Is it right that you're planning to malt your own barley as well? So, yeah, I, I missed out that part of the building. Uh, we, we have the bare bones of a malt floor, um, a malting floor with a kiln. Um, and one of the benefits of having a biomass boiler is you have a massive amount of residual heat coming off the, uh, the grate, basically, the cooling grate. And so we have all the pipe work um, in place, taking that excess heat to the kiln tower, uh, where we, once that is operational, um, uh, there will be a fan at the top of the kiln to basically suck the heat out of a large radiator below the kiln floor, um, uh, which is all free, it's all free heat. And then we would have a, a peating box, so a little smoke box, where we could put local peat in it um, to give it the flavor. Um, the floor itself isn't huge. Um, it's about four tons, give or take, um, but it's divided into four sections with underfloor heating and cooling pipes. So basically underfloor water pipes that can be adjusted uh, for temperature to either bring on or slow down uh, the malting process or the germination process, I should say. So again, a little bit experimental. We won't know if it works until it, it actually is operational. Um, and if and when it becomes operational, it will be just for small batches of barley that we grow here. So maybe experimental heritage crops, things like that, um, that we can take right the way through from, from field to bottle. Okay, when do you expect that to come online, Alex? Uh, very good question. Um, we wanted to, to really establish the, the spirit, the, the consistency, the production process, everything, and then look at it because it involves more people, it involves around the clock, uh, and, and there's bound to be some hiccups. I think we're more or less there now in terms of uh, getting everything you know, to a, an even keel. Um, and so I'd certainly hope that we'll look at it in more detail this year, maybe, you know, early next year. Yeah, great. And let's just talk about the, the, the spirit character. You obviously made the decision fairly early on to go like 50-50, as you said, between peated and unpeated spirit. What, what, what was the motivation for that? I mean, really, we weren't trying to rock the boat too much in terms of 
uh, forcing a character. We wanted, I mean, one of the, as I said at the beginning, one of the points of having a distillery in that place is to allow the environment uh, to, to help. And um, for that reason, we wanted just to make the best quality we could and then basically let nature take over. So a traditional West Highland style is basically peated, but not heavily peated. And in order to keep your, um, your flexibility uh, uh, the greatest, uh, it seemed to make more sense to do both peated and unpeated and then have the blending capacity to, to reach that consistent level uh, in terms of whiskey in a bottle much more easily. And I, I, I believe we're not alone in that. I, I believe a number of our uh, more traditional neighbors who've been around a bit do the same and they'll they'll do heavily peated unpeated or peated unpeated and depending on the time of year uh, and and give the blender more flexibility um of course it also allows for uh, limited runs of just peated or just unpeated in terms of uh, uh bottles you know bottlings for the future so yeah it, it's generally a more flexible approach but sticking to our traditional west highland uh, uh, distilling character, if you like. Has that brought any any challenges, or were those those the kind of challenges that you foresaw, as as you said, with uh, you know with different receiving tanks and you know making sure that your spirit runs were, they weren't con contaminated between peated and unpeated? No, and to be honest, we we it's all in place. It runs very smoothly. That that side of it, we're not completely over the top in terms of. Um, keeping it segregated because at the end of the day, now that we're bottling, we're also putting our, our empty casks back in to refill stock. And you're never going to be able to fill an unpeated into an unpeated cask again. It just wouldn't work. So yeah, we'll, we'll have some cross-contamination in maturation going forward. Um, and uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. You've also got to remember that our water coming off the hill uh, the processed water, which of course is used for uh, reducing the spirit into cask, you know, so from still strength down to 63.5% filling strength, um, that is incredibly peaty. Um, and even after it's been through all the filtration that is required nowadays, it's still very peaty. So even our unpeated uh, malt still provides a slightly peaty whiskey. Yeah, a proper taste of Ardenmarken then. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, look, just to finish on that, it's all about, as I say, if you, you might as well use what, what has been given to you in the local area. Maximise the unique flavours of those um, of that local environment. Absolutely. And what's the focus with uh, maturation? Are, are you favouring any particular style of cask? Um, again, fairly traditional, although we are just beginning to now um, do some small batches of slightly more um, extrovert, if you like. So by traditional, I mean every year we have filled, roughly speaking, 65% to 70% ex-bourbon and the remainder in ex-sherry. Um, one of the aspects of the initial design and build was me getting on a plane, not just to sell Adelphi, but also to uh, secure contracts for wood, for casks. So uh, we have we've basically been using the same guys both in Kentucky and Jerez 
um, since day one. Um, <clears throat> in terms of other wood that we're now employing or bringing in in small batches every year, it's very important to me, um, really this whole, uh, not control, but um, interest in our supply chain all the way back to the, the, the primary source, if you like, whether it be barley or casks or whatever. We want to be involved and, and part of that journey from day one. So when I'm looking for um, specific casks other than sherry and bourbon, I'm looking to maybe small wineries where we'll know where their casks are coming from, the, the quality of the wine going into them, and building a relationship. You know, so rather than just randomly buying from the from the market, actually trying to get it back to source. Yeah. And this, this focus on supply chain and transparency seems to also be, be a kind of driving force behind what you're doing. I've read a little bit about the blockchain technology that you're using yeah. and, and you know, people can go to the bottle and is it a QR code that kind of reveals the information about the supply chain and where you're sourcing materials and products? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the QR code is just the the door, if you like, the window to to that uh, blockchain ledger. Um, the blockchain itself is it's about seventy percent complete in terms of uh, where we want it to be, but basically the, the final finished project will be a, a supply and manufacturing chain, uh, which is basically live. So, <clears throat> um, if you imagine. Um, a winery in south of France, for example, say we bought some Monbaziac casks, that supplier, that winery, would then feed into our blockchain ledger separately and say, we have supplied Ardemerkin Distillery with 10 barriques, um, and they contain the following wine, which was harvested from grapes, you know, all that information. They put that in independently, completely trustworthy. Um, so you've got them doing that, you've got the farmer putting the barley information in, you've got the maltster putting stuff in. All this is coming into our supply chain ledger. Then you get to the distillery and the mashman is entering live data into the, the cloud, into the ledger. The distiller, uh, the, the guy filling the casks, every cask has a barcode on it with its sort of digital DNA, if you like. And um, once it gets to the bottling stage, those casks then come down to Fife and each code gets scanned from the cask, which then uploads all that digital DNA, individual DNA, into that final assembly of casks that go into that vatting for that single malt. And then the consumer scans the QR code, and you know they could spend weeks looking at uh, that. <laughs> um, now, the, the one failing or potential failing of blockchain is that because it's an independent system, um, and you know, for those of you who knew it around uh, being developed for Bitcoin, for example, for cryptocurrency, it was to bypass the banks. That was the whole point. So you you lose that um, authenticator uh, that we believe to be the bank. Um, but you gain authentication by uh, just natural trustworthiness by people feeding in information. So if anyone's going to put false information in, someone will spot it. That's the whole point. And in terms of whiskey production, Scotch whiskey, um, we have this uh, very rigorous authentication process, which is HMRC. So imagine, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs 
are checking up on any distiller at any given point, uh, whether it be the weights and measures of barley coming in and how much yield you're getting off that, or what duty you're paying you know, on your spirit when you bottle it. So we have this natural authentication. Um, it's perfectly suited to what we're wanting to do. And it, the blockchain system therefore becomes not only a live stock system for us, um, but it also becomes our gateway to the consumer, this interactive gateway, and so many other things in between. Yeah. So, so it's uh, what did you say about seventy percent in place? But is that it's just something that you're you're adding to and building on uh, as as you progress? Yeah. So at the moment, we it is functioning, fully functioning, but we don't yet have all the casks um, uh, digital DNA, if you like. So we're still having to manually input information when it comes to the batting stage. Um, but certainly, I think within the next three months we should be up to a fully live system. And at that point, we can then bring in the supply chain and encourage each of our suppliers uh, to, to put their information in as well. Fantastic. And you had your first release what, towards the end of last year, Alex? Was it September or so? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a crazy year, as we all know, last year. And uh, we had always said that it would be a September <coughs> uh, 2020 release. And we got to June heads in hand, you know, how are we going to do this? Um, but luck, luckily, like so many others, we'd already hit the virtual tasting scene, and uh, for Adelphi anyway, and we therefore designed the launch around a virtual launch. So we created these little tasting packs, uh, which went around, around the world, along with the whiskey itself. And we're still launching. I mean, we did a 6.30 a.m. launch in Taiwan yesterday. Um, we've got one in New Zealand, I think, coming up later in the month. Uh, so it's brilliant. You get to see so many more people without even having to get on the plane. But obviously, you lose that um, direct interaction. So yeah, it, I'm looking forward to getting back to the to the traveling days as well. I'm sure. And what what does the year ahead hold for you? We're talking now in, in early January. Uh, but so so just at the start of the year, how do you see the year unfolding? Is it, is it possible to say? Um, well, we've hit the ground running in terms of production. Um, the distillery is at full, kill, uh, full tilt. It's doing 12 mashes a week. Um, down here in Fife, we have our lovely shiny new uh, 18,000 litre vatting tank, which is now plumbed in. And they are just literally uh, filling that as we speak. You might hear a distant compressor um, with uh, Arden American Batch 2, so the second release of single malt, which is due for uh, release later this month. Um, Adelphi, likewise, will, will continue its regular single cast releases. Um, and yeah, we just hope to, just to keep building and building. Uh, we're looking to launch in the US uh, later this year, maybe um, second quarter. Uh, which will be very exciting for our American. And hopefully towards the autumn, I'm, I'm not saying we'll be 100% back on planes and going to all the markets, but I know the team is really keen just to get out and see people again, um, as we all are. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, any thoughts, Alex, on like the industry as a whole at this point? Obviously, we've seen so many new distilleries come online. Uh, how do you feel about it? in looking ahead? I'm really excited. I mean, I, I think it depends on how you look at why, oh, oh sorry, 
if you look at the reasons why there are so many new distilleries, I mean, a number of people have said, oh, look at the boom and bust of the past and you know, the, the doom and gloom, then they won't survive, all this kind of thing. But there is a fundamental reason, a step change, if you like, in Scotch whiskey um, demand, which happened during the 2000s, early 2000s, which was um, the single malt, the value of single malt, the quality, the interest in single malt um, compared to the more traditional blended Scotch whiskey. So a traditional distillery was built basically to produce bulk whiskey for blenders. 99% of these new distilleries, including ourselves, have been designed and built to produce their own whiskey, their own single malt. Um, and that's why they can be smaller. Um, that's where they can really concentrate on quality uh, without having to worry too much about the end price. Although I think value has crept up to a not a concerning level, but certainly some um, some releases have been higher than possibly are sustainable long term. Um, so it's then the question of how do you get all this whiskey to market? And uh, the traditional having room on the shelf in a in a retailer anywhere in the world is going to get quite cluttered. We uh, potentially took some of the the shelf space away from wine uh, over the last decade, certainly in, in a number of markets I've been traveling to over the years, I've seen wine shops become increasingly whiskey focused. But of course, we've also had gin eroding that as well in, in more recent years. Uh, I'm not too afraid of gin. I think it's been a very good price benchmark. Uh, the consumer now understands that if they're spending 40, 45 pounds on a one day old bottle of spirit, albeit in a very fancy bottle, um, then maybe it's not such a bad thing to spend the same amount on a 10 year old whiskey you know so i think there's there's been a lot of um uh, change at the retail end um one of the one of the uh parts of this this development that does concern me is the route to retail and i am concerned that direct to retail so if you're distilling and expecting to sell all your bottled product straight from your own source so not involving uh, wholesalers or retailers or importers and all that kind of thing. Uh, given that it's alcohol, given that we've just exited uh, one of our largest markets um, in terms of Europe, I think it's fundamental that you still have a more traditional route to, to market um, through uh, established importers. And I think if you don't, I think you're going to find it hard uh, logistically to reach the consumer going forward. Yeah. Okay. And uh, can I just wrap up, Alex, by asking about your own whiskey family background? I understand uh, you you come from a long a long lineage of uh, you've got whiskey in your blood. Absolutely. <laughs> no, uh, I'm not sure if it was uh, really a driving force to get into the industry, um, but it was certainly something that we were very aware of as as kids growing up. Um, my mother's side, so my mother is an usher. And uh, my four times great grandfather uh, was Andrew Usher Senior. So he's basically the guy credited with with pioneering uh, branded blended Scotch whiskey, so a consistent Scotch whiskey, and and taking it from uh, a sort of aquavita mixed with tonics to a a labelled product that could be exported or, or sold, you know, outside of Scotland. Um, 
and then his lineage, his son, Andrew Usher, and, and thereafter, and the Walkers and all the rest of it. Um, so as far as I'm aware, Alexander Walker actually worked for Andrew Usher. He was one of his um, apprentices. So that's kind of that, that whole era is where it started in Edinburgh and really, really exciting. And I, I'll never forget, I mean, that his sort of slogan, if you like, uh, which rings in my ears to this day, is that you cannot create a brand without consistency. And it may seem a bit odd going into an independent bottling company where consistency is the hardest thing and it's probably the opposite of what you want in terms of the actual release. Um, but if you look at the quality as consistency, that, that keeping that benchmark, and certainly in terms of Arden American trying to keep that style, um, it's been a very important mantra to me uh, in my career in whiskey. Um, so yeah, look, it's been it's been lovely having that kind of backbone, that whiskey in the blood, I suppose, and it certainly kept kept me interested over the years. It's quite a journey, but I, for one, cannot wait to get up there when we're allowed to travel. Many thanks to Alex for his time and insights, and you can read more and also take a video tour of Ardnamurchan in the March issue of Unfiltered Magazine. That's available, as always, at smws.com. Until the next time, thanks for tuning in and cheers. Cheers.